0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. First, I'd like to apologize for the delay in this episode. It seems that life got a bit away from us last week, so I hope you'll all forgive me. In the future, I also want to add that we are going to be going to a bit of an ad hoc schedule for a while. I will be posting episodes as I'm able to, but I will not know in advance when that might be. So to today's topic, external validity. It's a topic that many of us don't really talk about. It's the idea that certain research findings only apply to certain groups. In sleep training, most people assume the research is applicable to all families. But is this the case? This is the question that Dr. Levita D'Souza and I examine together as we talk about the research that provides us information on who takes part and who doesn't, and then what this means for our understanding of the research in broader terms. By the end, I hope you have a better understanding of how this research may or may not speak to you. I am so pleased to have back with me again for I don't even know the number of times. Um, I think we've lost track at this point is Dr. Levita D'Souza. If you do not know who she is, I'm sorry I'm not giving an introduction because I think I've said it so many times that I'm going to say it is please go back. Find earlier episodes, and you can hear all about the amazing research she does, but she is a regular contributor here. We talk about all things sleep and her research now. We get to add that to what we've talked about. And I am so happy to have you back. I've missed you so much.
1: I have missed you, too. I'm so glad to be back. This has been a long time in the making, isn't
0: it? It has. I think we've both had COVID in the... Yes, the we bit have. Of time <laughs> yes, we've we, have. <laughs> we planned this. We had dates. There was COVID. There was other... There was everything. And we finally made it happen. Look at us. We have. Yeah, we are. It's, it's good. And so today, for those of you uh, that are wondering, as we sit here and reminisce, we are talking about the idea of what is evidence-based. And very particularly the idea of evidence-based in terms of who the research is applicable to. Mm -hmm. And so this stemmed from a conversation that Levita and I had where we were looking at some of the research. You know, again, if you haven't listened to a lot of what we talk about, we're going to talk about sleep. This is what we we do. This is, you know, of course. And um, the question becomes, can we call something evidence-based If we know that in the studies that report it, a large portion of the people choose not to engage with an intervention, what does this mean for how we're applying it to everyone? And I think it's a really interesting conversation. And I think it's one that, I don't know. I mean, I remember basic stats in in my graduate degree. And it was, what is external validity? Who can you apply your findings to? And this question never seems to come up when we're talking about sleep training.
1: Yes, and if it does come up, it comes up as being it's applicable to all,
0: which is simply not true. Yeah, it it really is. So, I mean, I think we're gonna start here. So let's, uh, we have to go back a little bit and talk about how sleep training is really one of the only things offered to people. Mm -hmm. when it comes to sleep problems. And similarly, there are pockets and places where it is pushed as something that people have to do for their kids under the guise of being a good parent or doing what's best for your child. And so I think it feels like you're in Australia, I'm in Mm -hmm. Canada. um, And I mean, the US is probably even more so with this Mm -hmm. than either of these countries. But it really, it seems to me like it really is kind of a, a, a ubiquitous part of being a parent, this idea that sleep is going to be something you have to quote unquote manage. Do you see that too with like families you work with and everything?
1: Yes, I do. So I think that it, this message is pushed down on two levels. One being, this is what is medically recommended. So it's coming as authoritative medical knowledge, Right. And this links back to the fact that it is quote-unquote evidence-based. And so it's accepted that you have to sleep train in order to teach the child whatever it is you're trying to teach the child. Then the other element of it, and what I see more frequently, is even if it's not explicitly recommended by an authoritative figure like a doctor or a pediatrician or a nurse, is this internalized sort of parenting ideology that I have to sleep train my child or else I'm not doing a service to the child. I'm not being a good parent. My child will have problems later in life. Um, And the problems, quote unquote, are usually referring to um, issues with independence. And so these are psychological issues that the parent is worried about. And so when I sit and reflect and think about why this knowledge has become the way it has, like how this has come to be this way, um, I often think about the mums who weren't brought up in the, quote, again, quote, unquote, Western countries. And so mums who were raised in a different culture. And there is this sort of push down or this pressure that they feel to go against practices that are not what they have been raised with as well. And so it's this big mix of um, this what is seemingly authoritative knowledge. What is this internalized idea of what a good parent should be and how you're not a good parent if you're not doing what we're telling you to do. And so no one's questioning where this is coming from, but everyone's wanting to follow it.
0: And I had this moment the other day that I feel is relevant to what you're saying about people trying to like counter their own intuition or their own upbringing or anything where um, someone came up and said, you know, oh, we've got to, we've, we've built some bad habits that we have to stop with our, our child. And when they talked about it more, I was able to clarify and say, okay, you haven't like, first off, I, right away, I said, these are not bad habits. Let's, let's talk. These were You know, holding your child to sleep, all this kind of stuff that went on. But what came up through the conversation is I said, What you have are habits that aren't working for you anymore. Correct. It's a very different, and it's so amazing how we've embedded this language into the way we talk about sleep that it demonizes it for all. Because by saying it's a bad habit, that's a qualitative judgment on the act. It has nothing to do with your personal circumstance, how it works for you, everything else. And I think that comes from this sleep training culture, this everything where we have we they've taken over the language to make mm-hmm. it seem like it's applicable to all, when it's mm-hmm. not. We could be talking about people, and I still think sleep training is not the answer. We all know that, but if you talk about it in one way and the only way is with laden moral judgment, Mm. then you are inherently attacking other people for whom it may be working great and sowing the seeds of doubt into what they are doing as parents.
1: Yeah. I think the moral judgment is one, but I think the other element of it is also this is what is meant to happen. So it's not a morality thing. It's just how you parent. And that one's harder to combat, I think, because then you it taps into your insecurities. It taps into this space of am I harming my child? Worth till, am I harming my child if I engage in practices that are not endorsed by the wider society? So um then it isn't about morality, it is about not, you know, it's going against our basic instinct of keeping this child alive. Um and if that's not being accepted. We have to go through all sorts of hoops, I suppose, to try and, and so what parents will do is say, well, either I hide what I'm doing, either I tell you, uh, you know, a lie, I will um, simply not engage in this conversation. And so these other voices are not being heard.
0: And this reminds me, like, this is, you know, I think there's that article, uh, Buyers and Simon, from mm-hmm. 2016. And I think it's a Canadian based one, but I could be wrong on that cuz I can't remember exactly at the moment. So, I apologize, but it was an argument that because we have evidence-based interventions and they are speaking specifically of cry it out, controlled crying, etc., that we don't need anything else. We don't need to offer parents anything and in fact, it is a legitimate reason to dismiss parental concerns. About Mm -hmm. these methods. And that kind, I mean, I think to take such a strong stance is rather shocking. Mm -hmm. But to take such a strong stance when, as we're going to discuss, the validity of that stance based on the research that they're citing and they're speaking about is a whole other issue. And I don't think they have any right to go there uh, given what the research actually is. Correct. And I think.
1: When you take a strong stance, and you know, there's all kinds of people in the world and everyone's entitled to their um, opinions and uh, their stance and how they, you know, the kind of research that's out there. It works for some people. Don't get me wrong, it certainly works for some people. But it. What I think what we're talking about today is it doesn't work for all people. And when it doesn't work for all people, it's important that we listen to the other people that it isn't working for because they're the ones not getting
0: help. And that's exactly what, the reason that article drove me so nuts is that that's exactly the opposite of what they're saying, is saying that no, 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 because it's quote unquote evidence-based for everyone, for mm-hmm. their perception of everyone, we don't need to even listen to a parental concern, which is mind-boggling. To the essence of advice, and this was in a, a medical journal, the essence of speaking to your healthcare practitioner is that they should be listening to you. What are your concerns? What are you going to talk to them about? And how do you come to an agreement on what's best? It is, you know, it's just shocking to me. But I think this brings us to the big thing is, we have to first talk about external validity in research. And so you are going to help me along to make sure I actually explain it well enough that anyone who is unaware is able to become aware. But the idea of validity in research is we have different types. We have internal, you get a little mini lesson on on methodology here. I know, (laughs) I know. So we have internal validity which is all about how well was the study conducted. And I think if you've listened to this podcast a lot, you see that's where we really break things down a lot, is that there's a lot of internal validity concerns. How are we measuring, Um, you know, in sleep training, of course, how are we measuring improvement? As we know, as we've talked about, a lot of these studies come down to parental report, which are not valid measures of actual infant sleep. So those are the internal questions. It's all about how we measured stuff, how we assess stuff. Um, But the external validity really comes into who took part and can we apply it to everyone? And as we all know, there are vast differences amongst families, amongst cultures, amongst uh, children that make certain things applicable or not To others, So if we talk about uh, language, and we're looking at how kids hear a specific sound, you have to look at it across different languages. You can't say how an English speaker hears an R is the same as a French speaker, because the R's are enunciated differently. And so if you have no French speakers in your study, and I say, sorry, I'm Canadian, everything's going to go back to English and French. But as you, you know, if you don't have a French person in your study, you can't extrapolate your findings from a group of English children to all English and French children or all English, French, and Hispanic children. This is why we have to have a, a proper representation of people in the studies. And this kind of gets to the crux of what we want to talk about today. And Livia, am I missing anything in explaining that?
1: No, you're not. But I think in addition to what you've said, there's the internal validity where we said we talked about parental concerns as being one of the um, the key point to offer intervention. As we know, it's not objective, and that really compromises um, your inclusion criteria, so to speak, because if i was raised in a different culture the same behaviors that are labeled problematic in one culture is not labeled problematic in another culture and to give you an example more recently there was a study in sri lanka which talked about how noise levels were one of the most primary concerns for the caregivers and if you think about the living situation of course it is the noise levels because it's density right uh, and how that was a concern that the parents reported was affecting infant sleep that is not something we would even consider to be problematic um, you know in the western world because the density is not the issue the population is not the problem um, and so if you then say that night waking is a problem and that's why we have to offer intervention it's automatically excluding a big section of the society you know of the population or across the globe that don't Think of it as a problem.
0: Yeah, and that is yes. Yeah. So I guess really the clarification there, and and we, I want to talk more about what you just brought up about the difference is yeah. about the different types of external bias problems. So we have yeah. both who are the children that are taking part, but also yeah. who chooses to take part. What are the considerations of where they live? There's a lot of different factors that go into this, and I mean I always think of it, um, and I'm sorry, it's I think about it as the crux of the problem in sleep training research is that the vast majority has been done in what we call weird societies. And if you don't know weird societies, I mean, as, as you and I know, not everyone always mm-hmm. believes in the weird society. period mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, a little shout out to reviewer number two. But um, they're weird is an acronym. Um, It was developed actually at UBC by researchers while I was there, but it is Western educated, industrialized rich and democratic countries Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of psychological research. And a lot of sleep training research falls under the psychological umbrella um, has taken place in these weird societies in Canada and the U S and Australia in the UK. UK. Yeah. These are the kind of the big countries where a lot of this takes place. And we are, for lack of a better word, weird. I mean, this really comes down to a lot of the research that was done on weird cultures. And for those that don't know, it was mainly economics research that started this, where we had a wealth of of decades of research where we treated findings about how humans behaved in different economic situations as indicative of human behavior, all human Behavior. Every human across the globe is going to behave the same. And we just assumed it. And um, Joe Heinrich came out and and actually went and did this research in other cultures. And he replicated these studies. Only he didn't replicate the findings. Hmm. Because these other cultures prove that for decades we've been taking for granted that those of us in these weird cultures were indicative of the norm of of humans. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we're not. We are, for lack of a better word, weird. That Mm -hmm. is who we are. And it really has highlighted a strong limitation of so much research that is predominantly done in these cultures. And sleep training is without a doubt, no. in fact, I think it may even be the epitome of it. I don't know. I mean, Levita, I I think about this. It is such a Western phenomenon to sleep train. That, of course, the research is inherently biased by the fact that it is driven by Western cultures. And if you look at the history of sleep training, I think,
1: you know, you've talked about this before in your episodes, right? Where up until 200 years ago, we weren't regularly sleep training. So, And this has happened only in the past 200 years to coincide with industrialization and um women having to go to work um and that is then used as the guys to say well you need your independence and the babies need to be independent and so can you please make them independent as quickly as possible because if you're uh parenting overnight apparently you can't go to work so um when you look at how this has been this has come around you'll realize that it is quite typical to the western Educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, re- weird uh, countries. But it's again being used as almost the, like you say, the epitome, right? So more recently, I'm noticing papers coming out of the Eastern countries, which again are using sleep training. And I'm questioning why? Why is this happening? But it's driven by capitalism, I think. I really of think it's 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 used as a way of, um, well, if you have to go back to work, if you have to bring in the money, if you have to do all of this, this is one way to do it. Again, that's a small small part of the population. It's not the entire population. That's not how the whole world
0: um, functions. Totally, and that is, I think, one of those things. And as we go back, like I, I know it is branching out, but I always just want to think about, you know, a lot of research in these countries. Not only does it happen in these countries, but if you're able to take part in research with your child, there is an inherent bias towards, (laughs) frankly, upper, well, middle class to upper middle class white women and their kids. And that is who takes part in a ton of these studies. And not all, I know people try to recruit elsewhere, but when you talk about the demands of research, especially some of these longitudinal ones, you're filling out sleep diaries for your child, you're tracking everything. A lot of people are like, uh, I do not have the freaking time for this. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. not. What do you? Like, you don't give me anything in return mm-hmm. for spending my time. It's not something they're going to do. It no. is absolutely not helpful or relevant for them.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: we do deal again, even with like as we break it. We just keep. There's layers upon layers of this external validity that come into play, and so I think the first thing is, as you so highlighted, is. Even if we get to running a study, which we're going to talk about that depth going into there, but already we're talking about running a study in a country that is running um, the study out of a place of thinking this is something that it has been funded because mm-hmm. they think it's necessary. Oh, yeah. yes. And therefore it has already started to become imbued into that culture's view mm-hmm. of what is appropriate. Mm-hmm
1: and from a research perspective trying to get funding to run an alternate study can be quite difficult because Mm -hmm. when you think of it from a research perspective um the studies that tend to get funded are the ones that are already funded and so trying to um because it looks good uh, the funding money has been used well there's publications so from a grant giver perspective the study is well and functioning, it's providing evidence, it's running well. And so what's the motivation to provide an alternate study? Because again, coming down to who is going to be recruited, how are we going to recruit the alternate voice? Um, you know, there's so many logistics in there, which it's just not worth the time and effort It's for some people. And so it's like, well, just let it be, we'll just keep studying what we already know and expanding on that, but not really trying to offer the alternative.
0: And I think because many of the alternatives that might be proposed to get caught up to where the status quo is you need a really big study. Like if you start small, they say, what's the point? That's so small. We have these bigger studies out there already. Mm -hmm. Then you say, okay, then I want to do this big study. Well, how could you ask for that much money? That's too Mm -hmm. big. I mean, you're caught in this catch 22 of Mm -hmm. never being able to get funding for something because of how it started. And this all goes to this big issue. And that is that if you want to say that something is applicable to everyone, everyone has to have taken part in the research. And I, mm-hmm. when I say everyone, I mean a representative of everyone, of so everyone. To say, right? We're not recruiting however many billion people are on earth to run a study. That's mm-hmm. not happening. Mm-hmm. But you need to represent these various groups. And so let's think, I, I want to So we have this top layer. I'm just trying to keep framing it here so that we're following our narrative here. We have this top layer. If you're not even looking at other countries, you're missing a lot because Mm -hmm. not every country does what we do. I mean, you can go back. I had uh, that episode on Uspavani, which is a Mm -hmm. Czech view of being with your child. So very different right there that there is a Mm -hmm. cultural support of supporting your child at night and not leaving them and that that is actually viewed as a positive. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is you know one of those things where we say already, okay, well, wait a second if these other countries have different views, what are we what are we doing? So we take it down to say, okay, all these findings that we might have are they're applicable and and I want to bring it back to, sorry, I should clarify. I want to bring it back to the studies we have to really break down what do we have and who is it applicable to? Mm-hmm. So we now have, it is applicable to people in potentially, our first layer, mm-hmm. weird countries. That's mm-hmm. it. It's not applicable mm-hmm. elsewhere. There we go. Now, even within the weird countries, let's talk a bit about the recruitment process and the agreement and how a study goes. Yeah. And I'm going to say there is, let's start with recruitment. You and I both have recruited for studies. We know mm-hmm. what this looks like. Mm-hmm. You don't get to walk out into the population, pick a hundred people and say, you all must take part in my study, randomly, whatever. You put out a call for participants Mm -hmm. and you hope people respond. You might put a call out at the hospital. You might put a call out in a doctor's office. It might Mm -hmm. be through the university, uh, various groups, but you are putting out a call for research. Unless, Mm -hmm. am I missing something? Have you done it a different way? Well, I've used social media. Uh, yeah. And even then, there is a
1: self selection bias in social media as well, because a certain population only accesses this information. But on the other hand, it's a certain population that's aware of this issue and wants to participate. Okay, and I'll give you a very good example here it's a personal anecdotal evidence, e- evidence, guardian slip example. Um, I was at a concert uh, where this um, Indian singer was coming to Melbourne and it's a favorite singer. Um, And so we went along, okay, and there's thousands of us, like thousands, of the indian people there and all i could think of was i bet you're not participating in my study you are the people i need to be talking about because you're the people because i can look at the parenting practices there were infants there were babies there were children of all ages at this concert um a very friendly family friendly concert but i'm watching the mothers put their babies to sleep while the singer is there loud music the mother's rocking the baby dancing with the baby there's babies put in arms and i'm going you are the people I need to speak to. How on earth do I recruit you? You're not the ones responding to me. Um, and, you know, and that's the crux of it, really, for me, as a researcher, But you know.
0: <laughs> and, and that's a great example, because you do attachment-based research in, mm-hmm. in your stuff. So, if you don't know that, that's part of what Levita does. And so, yes, trying to grasp that Population. And you said the word that I was going to get to that I didn't explain, which is the self selection bias. And that is when we put out calls for research, only certain people are going to say yes, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're doing sleep training studies, in many of the cases, who do you get who agrees to take part? Well, if I, I can tell you now, if I saw a study calling for people who wanted to study various sleep interventions, whatnot, when my children were young, uh, I wouldn't be responding. That would not be something I was open to in any way, shape, or form. Depending on how it was presented, I might have first gone to them, and this gets is about to get to a second-ish layer of, of everything. But either way, you first start with you're, you're not getting people who don't perceive that they have sleep problems, Mm -hmm. Because if they don't have a sleep problem, and that's usually how many of them are recruited if you're struggling with sleep and need help. So those who don't, and it doesn't mean these people have unicorn babies that sleep through the night. They may be people of other cultures who just, well, this is what normal baby sleep Mm -hmm. is like and I'm perfectly fine. I might have extra support. I might be breast sleeping. I might be doing all sorts of things that make this more manageable. I don't Mm -hmm. need someone else to come in and tell me what to do to make it better. Mm -hmm. Um and so that is that first self selection is that you're getting people who want to engage in a form of intervention mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't and but we don't even know how many people don't because we don't know how many people are reached for a given study mm-hmm. who agree and not only who want to take part but now we get to the privilege part who can take part mm-hmm. there may be people who also do want intervention but are unable to for a variety of reasons. I think about, you know, financial reasons, you think about practical reasons Mm -hmm. of work and access to all these different things that researchers are asking. There's a huge level of privilege involved in being able to take part in research. And Mm -hmm. so already we've now cut out a large swath of the world. We're now cutting out another swath, and the problem is we don't know how big it is, of parents even within this weird paradigm right
1: mhm mm-hmm. and we don't know again like i've said earlier what the sleep problem is maybe maybe that certain you know you have to have a certain level of a sleep problem to be able to uh even take part in the intervention uh perhaps parents come to you and then go you know for reassurance and not necessarily intervention and then um may not be offered an intervention or may maybe offered an intervention that they are not comfortable with so there's this whole range of issues and you know there might be some parents who have a sleep problem but doesn't fit the study criteria and so that doesn't get um, you know acknowledged or offered an intervention or even help we don't know that because it's not reported
0: Yeah. And that's a really good one because, and we'll get to, there are some studies that have reported this and that's what we're going to get to some of this research as it goes, because it's very new that it's being reported and it hasn't Mm -hmm. been for a very long time, but there are often criteria. You cannot have a comorbid other issue if the child has a feeding problem or a health issue or whatnot, but how those are defined, how they've been identified. Mm -hmm. Um, it may be the child does have one, and it hasn't been identified by the appropriate source. So how do they navigate that on a case-by-case yeah. basis? And then you just touched on the next layer that I was getting to on this, which is that even if you come and we say, all right, let's take part. You know what? You're, you've are you got a sleep problem. You fit all this criteria we're in. And then I tell you about your intervention. Mm-hmm. You can say, and I'm out. Thank you yeah. very much. I don't really want to do that and now we're losing other people to mm. that that come in and that's really important because by the time we peel away these layers of the onion that we're getting to in terms of who is taking part in my mind and obviously other people may feel differently this this may be something that others would argue with me but I do believe we are looking at a very narrow swath of the population. I think we are looking at um, relatively privileged people. We are looking at people who are perceiving a problem, and this does not mean there is a problem. And that is a really important distinction because the perception of a problem, as we have talked about already in other episodes, is not a guarantee that your child has a problem. Many of our perceptions are not based on the reality of infant sleep, that they are based on cultural norms. And this is really important to keep in mind because you can do that. And in fact, I would say people who are having a, a serious problem are often those that get excluded because they are, they are too there are problems, there's feeding problems, there's health problems. And we know those things affect sleep immensely. And so probably their sleep is qualitatively worse than any of the others, but they don't get included because of those particular issues that then kind of prevent them from being included. So Mm -hmm. we're looking at a very narrow narrow set of the population, I think here. And and I think it's fair to say a very predominantly white group of the population, and generally more middle to upper class.
1: And I think even if it isn't white, and I, because I know some of the studies would make an effort to recruit other people, it is a certain middle to upper class, because I think when you look at you know other issues that come in like socioeconomic status um and things like that the picture gets more complex and so that would affect the design of the study because on some level you want it to be fairly homogeneous as well so there are reasons why researchers would do it as well but i can and, and you know as a researcher i can see that but then when we are taking the findings of that research and generalizing it that's when we need to be a little but critical in our thinking about who this is really applicable to.
0: And I want to add one more and I can't believe neither of us brought this up so far, but when you're talking about sleep issues, in many cases you're immediately removing anyone who wants to continue sleeping close to their child. Oh yes. Because that is, you know, and that that crosses culture, that crosses SES, anyone it is, mm-hmm. you know, you mm-hmm. cannot take part in a study if you want to continue yeah. sleeping close to your child. There are no pieces of advice out there. So, you know, I'm sure many people listening fit themselves into one of these various buckets that we've just yeah. excluded. And so yeah. what I hope is clear, and I, I, we are going to talk about some of these studies, but one of the key things that we really want to drive home in this research is that, or in this, in this discussion of the research, is that when you don't hear yourself being represented when you go, oh my God, this really doesn't sound like it works for me, but what's wrong with me, which is typically Mm -hmm. how families respond, there's nothing wrong with you. The research doesn't speak to you. You are not the person that has been the focus of these studies. And it is, you know, they're trying to take someone else and say, you should be doing this. It's like, I am a 42-year-old, middle-aged, yeah, not really in shape, but trying to be a little bit it, woman. If you take a 25-year-old marathoner and say, "Well, why aren't you doing this, 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 and this?" I beg like, because I'd be dead. That's just how it would go. And we have to have the same applicability to our sleep training research as we do to other things. When we look at when we look at health outcomes, we separate stuff by ages, by years, because we know we have the data to say mm-hmm. there are differences. And it has been a disgrace, I think, that so much of the research on infant sleep has been focused on this small population. So, Mm -hmm. and now I want to, you know, I want to give you a moment to just finish that thought. Then I want to actually look at the couple studies that really are there that tell us some of the degree to this, because I'm sure people may be thinking, okay, how often does this happen? Yes, we can look at half the world and say, okay, we're ignoring them, but I live in a weird culture. What really is, you know, because I live in this weird culture, maybe I should be more applicable. But before we get to those numbers, am I missing anything in this story as we've head down towards this?
1: I think the thought that came
0: to my mind was, um,
1: you know, even when parents do agree to participate, whether or not they persist in the intervention so if i don't know uh so i'll go pretty clueless going yeah my child has a sleep problem i expect you to fix it for me you say yep i agree your child has a sleep problem here's the intervention yeah you know we this is a randomized study, which we will talk about. You are now allocated to the intervention group. This is how we're going to intervene. You need to do this at home. I start the intervention. I realize I can't do this. I cannot hear my baby cry. I cannot sit there even for two minutes. And I'm supposed to be sitting for five minutes. So whatever that is. And I go in and pick up the baby because I cannot adhere to the protocol. It's too hard. So. What do I do? Either I drop out or I want to seem like I'm doing the right thing. And so I tell you I've done it, even though I may have not. And there is no way to verify that. Um, Now, the research doesn't capture that. But certainly, clinically, those, you know, like we've tried it, but it doesn't work. But I feel horrible saying that I haven't done it. Um, And so I just told them I did.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because that is, yes, absolutely essential. And I think here of uh, Loutzenheiser, um, Loutzenheiser, Um the yes, I'm awful with names. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, do not do a study on memory and extrapolate anything from me. Um, but it is, you know, that was a survey study. Done and because it was survey with no intervention, and everything it was on sleep training. How many people did it? It was a Canadian study. Um, it was a Canadian survey, not a study. It was a Canadian survey. How many people did it? How long did it take? How many times did you have to redo it? It was really eye opening because this was now a pressure free environment to just speak the truth to mm-hmm. ones. So if you haven't seen the results, I know I've talked about it on EP and it, it's come up elsewhere, but. it it really didn't work for many families like for some they really reported it did in a short time but there was a lot for whom it didn't work and they had to do it multiple times which we've all read about in the research you know kid gets sick or whatnot and you're going back but it really highlighted all these things that tend to get lost from these studies and i think it's because you're now expanding that pool of who you're including what are their experiences even having tried it, where do they go? So it's exactly mm. that group you're talking about. We're not getting that 14% who said it worked great on the first try and everything's good because those are the ones that stayed in the study. You're mm. getting the full group of people who tried it and getting this majority saying, Oh man, yeah, I had to do it multiple times. It took this long. Yeah. This was the problem. And you're capturing that albeit not in the most scientific way that's the mm-hmm. problem with surveys but it really does highlight the need for more of this this work to be done to include more people and really capture not only their experiences but alternatives which is the topic for another podcast day i'm already yeah. just prefacing that <laughs> um but let's say so i you know in, in looking at the research on this i actually went through to see what i could find who? Mm-hmm. Ha- on these numbers. And that was, there was really only two studies I could find that reported on the numbers in details that we could kind of pull mm-hmm. from it. Now, one of them was the original Hiscock and colleagues back in 2014. And then that follow-up with Price and colleagues I'm that kind of so. made a splash in 2016 that said, if anyone remembers, no, 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 the six-year follow-up, there's no differences between those who, who Took part in the intervention, which was sleep training, control crying, and those who didn't. And so, okay, great. Look at this. There's no effects. So when we hone into this, what are the studies? And the second study, pardon me, is Connell. And I actually had her on the podcast. It was one of the earlier ones. And we got into talking about this, but neither of us had the numbers at the time to bring up. Um, Mm -hmm. But they really were, it was really, I, I will give them this it was a beautifully presented numbers yeah. here. This was the most yeah. comprehensive style because it was a randomized controlled trying. And, and at the time, the, mm-hmm. the the need to publish this data has become more prevalent lately. So this is now mm. hopefully going to be something that comes out. So, yeah. So let's start with Hiscock and colleagues because this study got a huge amount of press, right? Like really it was the price, the follow-up that got the huge amount of press to mm-hmm. say, look, no long term effects of crying it out at 6 years of age and they did that by
1: measuring attachment didn't they
0: uh, it, i'm just going to say poorly measuring it but and um but also they looked at other factors that were parent yeah. report at even age 6 yeah. we were yeah. not looking and it was so it was a parent report of child attachment Correct. it didn't assess it in the child no we'll talk that, that again internal validity issue come, mm-hmm. uh, coming through but but what they did is they had a large randomized trial and this one has a lot of different flaws for how they did it but um they had 1957 people assessed for eligibility and they described the study to them and of those 520 declined to participate mm. immediately is gone. They are not going to take part in the study. We do not know why it is not that all of them may have not wanted to engage in that particular intervention. We don't know, but we know something affected 25%. It may be the privilege issue. It may be the desire not to do sleep training. Mm -hmm. It may be, but that is, we already were dropping that out now. Um, one of the things that they did was they did measure in the intervention group. So then they split people off into the intervention group and then your control group. One of the problems is that the control group, they didn't track what they did. So we actually have no mm-hmm. idea what happened within that group in many ways. They they had some conversations about health with the nurses, but it... it we don't know who did mm-hmm. sleep training, who didn't, what what they asked other providers, how they handled it. There's a lot open there that raises some questions. Mm-hmm. But th- we do know that they have data on those who are assigned to the intervention group. Mm-hmm. And this goes to your whole point as to who did it, who followed up with this. Mm-hmm. and um, and, and obviously, with controlled crying, you're looking at, you know, who did something most or all of the time. So who Mm -hmm. engaged in the intervention most or all of the time of these half of the people that went up? And only 55% of families did it most or all of the time. So 45% of families did it none or some of the time. Mm. And... Given this is and this was the crux. There were other elements they tested, but the idea was settling without picking up. So I should specify that was that one piece that they asked about. How many times are you trying to settle without picking up your child? Which is, of course, the crux of controlled crying is go in Mm -hmm. and give a little pat, wait the distance, but never pick them up. Mm -hmm. 45% of people are picking up their kids a bunch of the time. (laughs) So we're now taking the research from this to say of these groups that that went down, only half of those who even got assigned, which is even less than that, I mean, that 520 declined to participate, more were not ineligible. And then they had it yeah. broken down of even smaller groups. So yeah. we're looking at 55% of those who did it all the time. And yet the findings still aren't those because the findings are still blending those other 45%. Mm. Right. Because and this brings us to another issue is what statistics are appropriate to use. And they did Mm. an intent to treat analysis, which Mm. never tells us about the actual intervention. It tells us about being part of an intervention. And that's really important to clarify. And I think, you know, if you haven't listened recently um, on the preschool daycare um, Kelly did a great job of of splitting that out because it was – she did both, the intent to treat and the effect of treatment um, by mm. looking at those who actually did take part. And it's, it's really important that we look at both because findings can be very different. And that was not done here or in the Price follow-up. So mm-hmm. then we look at the follow-up study with Price, and 74 of 174 families that were allocated to the intervention – They said here, and this was a weird piece. I don't know if you can clarify this because it was an Australian study. Maybe it's weird language, but they say did not quote unquote receive the intervention, which is around 43%, which Mm -hmm. sounds like to me as I read through that they didn't take it up. Because when you look at the numbers for the rest of the studies, it still implies 147 families. So I don't know if like, I don't know how else you could say they didn't receive it. Like you can't have a study where you have two groups and then 47 people sorry we just didn't have time to give it to you but we're going to include you
1: uh, yeah i don't know what that means but we can only hazard i guess here I, i'm suppose uh, i suppose which is um are they referring to the researchers not receiving the information from
0: the parents at follow up to know No, they talked about it, families not receiving the intervention. It was very clear about that. And then they said, though, like parts of the intervention, 93% of the people in the intervention found it helpful to talk to have someone to talk to, that they could call whether they did the interview, they found it helpful to have someone to talk to. So clearly, they all received something. So I think the word receive was used. And given that it matched with the other 45% who didn't report doing it it kind of to me seemed like they were talking about the number of families that just didn't engage with the intervention as it should have been done
1: probably adhered to the protocol the way they intended to run it
0: that's what i think like i think it's exactly what you were touching upon but i have Mm -hmm. to be honest the language is not what i've heard before (laughs) no no I don't know what to say, I don't know how to, to talk about this because I'm like, I've never heard that. I don't know. So, but we take this and I say, you know, this study, both Hiscock and colleagues at first and Price has really been drawn as kind of a, we can use this to apply to everyone. And it's not applicable to everyone. It's really, really not. As we can see, we, we've we narrowed this down. Even just think about it. They I'm just going to go down. They assessed 1,957 families for eligibility. By the time you're doing your six-year follow-up, the intervention group consists of 174 families. Oh, families. And 74 of them had something weird happen that we're not entirely sure what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's the big difference between who started and who finished. And there's a lot of reasons for it. This is, I don't want to denigrate research because research is, this is the process. It is how it goes, absolutely. But it's why external validity is so important is that because Mm. it is a crucial piece of the process, we are going to lose people. We're going to lose a lot of people. But we have to give in. Exactly. But you have to then acknowledge why are we losing them and what might Mm. it mean for who we apply this to? Mm. Any
1: follow-up, as you would know, will have people, we will lose people because life happens. Suddenly the problem is not a problem. The relevance of the problem isn't one anymore at six years of age because, you know, hopefully your child's sleeping now. Um, and so there's no motivation to come back and say, hey, look, the intervention worked, you know, or, hey, look, it's all good. It's a bit like when you see a client and they do well, you know, but most times you never hear back from them. And then that's an indication that it's, you know, they're probably off on their way doing their thing. Um, exactly. I suspect it's the same with research.
0: It totally is. And also just not only is it not an intervention, you have people that have moved, you have families yeah. that have, you know, they're busy now. They may have had a second child. They've got, who maybe there's health issues. Like there's all sorts of things that can intervene with someone trying to come back to a study or complete a study for that matter. As we talk about the dropouts that happen inside, there's a lot of that there. So, so, I don't want this to be a don't trust research. It's all yeah, no. flawed. It is don't necessarily trust the conclusions if people have not taken that into account. Okay. Is I think the message they were saying. So the second study here I want to talk about because this was so lovely to see the numbers here. Um, this was Khan and colleagues in 2020, and what they did is they looked at either crying it out or camping out in Australian families that reported a sleep problem based on the degree of anxiety they assessed in the child. And so we want to start with, they found that in their broader recruitment, and they had various, again, recruitment conditions, that children couldn't have other comorbid issues, all this stuff, 188 families were eligible. And when they spoke with those 188, 61 declined to participate. So again, we're just now, we dropped 25% in the last. We're losing about 30 here. Thirty percent here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is, again, we don't know why. We can't speak to why, but we know that those 30, something, they are, because they declined, but they went through the process of being tested for eligibility and everything like that, Mm -hmm. there is something unique to them that is different from the other 70 Mm -hmm. that decided to go forward. And that Mm -hmm. is, we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. but there is something different.
1: And, you know, a, a more benign sort of um, explanation could just be the problem's no longer a problem. So, exactly. you know, because these things take time by the time you set up the study and, you know, have your inclusion criteria and gather a sufficient sample. Developmentally, the problem may not be a problem anymore and you don't need to go ahead and get an intervention.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's, thank you. Yes, it could be totally benign, Yeah, but they're different. Yeah yeah and whatever that is, it is. Now, of the remaining families, uh, nine so ninety one families were randomized. I don't these numbers do not add up to one hundred and eighty eight, so I'm not entirely sure where the other people went, but they probably just were not allowed in for other reasons. They just didn't meet other criteria. um forty three families were sent to the controlled crime group. And of those, eleven families discontinued use. So, Again, getting to your later layer here, we now have a further, like 25% of that group now is out. Now, 48% were sent to the camping out group and 18 discontinued use. So we have 37% of people dropping out of that group. So in the end, um, so yeah, the, the other 36, pardon me, didn't meet criteria. That was the mm-hmm. other, so that was the difference there. You had 152 people who could have completed the interventions. Mm -hmm. and only which 62 actually were assessed for having completed the intervention. So you're looking at 41% of that initial population. Mm -hmm. Folks, we cannot take... Data from those groups and say it applies to everyone. 100%. 100%, Like
1: just that, that it worked for the 41%. And I guess that's what the point was at the start, that it works for some
0: people. Well, it really did. There were differences and it didn't fully work. Like it's worth looking into (laughs) the study because it was still interesting on its own of how much work in some cases and why and and whatnot. But it, 60%, 59%, just to be specific there. That is, we're looking at the majority are not even represented in the final results. Mm -hmm. I'm just, I sometimes baffles me. Like I sometimes forget these numbers and then you say them out loud and you're going, what has happened? What is going on that we are now claiming we have quote unquote, evidence-based reasons Mm -hmm. or evidence-based research to present to people is that this is the only thing we ever need to offer you to do. Just I, it makes me angry. Make me happy I can now. See. I know. Make me happy now. So this is like. Oh. So it brings us now to this issue of why does this matter? I'm furious. Levita's like I'm too far away to do anything about making you happy. So I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> what to do. give you a hug if I was there. Oh, I need it. It's um. But why does this matter? And I think you know yeah. we've touched on this so much. But let's just start with. I want to go to the very bare bones of if a bunch of these families approach them for support, they saw, yeah. look, there's a study I'm struggling. They didn't get help. No. They didn't. And, and this may not be, it's not a fault of the study because there may not be that it's fair. You can, you yeah. can't broaden it. It's not the study, but these people didn't get help. But now we're using the research to tell them this is the only thing they should do do. when they tried getting help that route. And that was not for them for one of myriad reasons. Either Mm -hmm. they didn't qualify for it, but hey, guess what? We're still going to tell you after the study comes out that that's the only thing we're going to offer you. Mm -hmm. And can you imagine being a parent who went for a study, was told, I'm sorry, you don't qualify for this. Then going to your doctor down the line who says, oh no, look, do this. But I just tried to do that with them. And they told me I'm not eligible. I don't qualify. Well, that's all we have for you. So go ahead. Like, what an asinine situation to put families into. Um, And so for those families, they've just tried to do it and it didn't work. Or it wasn't for them. Or they weren't eligible. And Mm. they still have nothing because all we've done is go back to say this is now what you're supposed to do. Right. If people aren't doing the interventions, the people that are declining at the beginning or who are dropping out. So I'm just talking there about people. The first group is those who didn't qualify. Yeah, right? Now you have people who declined or dropped out. Well, let's go with dropped out because if you declined there could be as you said the reason that the problem's already resolved itself That's resolved, and that could be yeah. there. But yeah. if you went into it and then dropped out because you didn't want to continue the intervention, you've now tried it. You've said, this isn't for me. This is not for my family. This is not. And we're going back and saying, oh, no, but this is evidence-based. You have to do it. You have to, because this is the only
1: thing that's going to work. And
0: if you don't do it,
1: you are at fault because you cannot persist with the protocol in some way.
0: Yeah. And so now we have those families. Then we have those who did decline at the beginning. And Yes, some of them, there may not be a problem anymore. Some may have very well been like, oh yeah, this is not congruent with my life, my values, our situation. Mm -hmm. privilege could be and privilege also seeps into then the last group of those who never even made it in to talk and be a part of the research to begin with because they're in Mm -hmm. the wrong country the wrong socioeconomic class um whatever else they don't have access to so the adverts going out to try and Mm -hmm. come in for this
1: i just don't feel like Participating in research, so you have to. You also have to think about who is conducting the research, and so if they have had an experience of if they go to a doctor, they go to a maternal child health nurse, you know, the parent child health centers, and are being told that the only way that you can get help is if you put your baby um, separately, or keep your baby separately. Why would I participate in research that's also going to probably tell me the same thing? I'm just going to wing it. I don't want to do this. And so there's a whole section of population that will have sleep problems perhaps, which don't look like the sleep problems the studies are looking at, but are still not getting help because we don't even know what the sleep problem looks like there.
0: Absolutely. And that is, yeah, like there's so many different scenarios by which people choose not to take part in research. And I mean, it's it's a problem because it means we're we're missing all of these people. We're getting the people who feel comfortable going in, who feel comfortable advocating for themselves, who have the time, the spe- all of it. It's just we are missing so many people. And this doesn't even get us into the issue of the fact that many of these interventions have multiple components and we're only extrapolating one component of them. Like you look at these above studies They have more than just that intervention. They have information. Look at that one stat from Hiscock and Collie that um, 93% of people in the intervention, what they found helpful was just having someone to talk to. Mm -hmm. That no one says, we didn't come out of that study and say, hey, maybe we should set something up that families have someone they can call and just chat to when they're having a hard time. Mm -hmm. We took it and said, hmm we should tell more people to stick their babies in a room and leave them to cry. Cry. That is our solution here. Um, It is, I mean, I just, I don't, it is such a problem that I really feel like, I feel like it's a massive problem because of how prevalent sleep training is and how prevalent it is to be treated as the panacea to, apparently the world's woes with sleep, right? That this is it. And Mm -hmm. I I don't, I mean, I guess, here's my question for you. You're a researcher, you're a clinician, um, written this. What do we do to shift this narrative at this stage? How do we get this element out into the sphere, like, is it that we need, like, Khan did a a, um, a full reporting of who took part, who didn't, so that every study we can see exactly how many people completed. Yes, I think um, on one on a
1: more I think simplistic level, having a more transparent um, process where. You know some of these questions can be answered because you think about how papers get published, and if you have peer reviewers, right if the reviewers are um, not someone who, who you know who who sort of align with the the evidence in some ways uh, and it's not it's not you know I'm not trying to blame anyone here, but I think if you align you don't see contradictory information. You don't want to, because it's a confirmation bias. It's like, well, yes, I know this works. Here's more evidence telling me this is working. Why do I question it, right? And so what gets through publication processes as well is what is meant to be a very objective peer review process sometimes isn't a very objective peer review process because everyone's accepted that this is evidence-based. So having someone sort of critically, like we have in some ways, critically look at it and say, well, tell me more. Perhaps there isn't more information that we just don't know, right? And more information comes in. We can have a more clear, transparent process of what actually occurred to help make different decisions.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I also think I would love to see a section in papers where they had to write truly this a a little paragraph on the external validity who does this apply to and really make researchers think this applies to families in Australia you know I'm looking at these studies because they're like let's be honest these studies they can't even extrapolate to like the United States because as much as we might think we can There's differences in maternity leave policies, in family leave, family pay. All that stuff affects how we engage with our children's sleep. So we Mm -hmm. say they're eligible for Australian families who agree to participate. And that's when you get to start looking at if you measure, you know, okay, of the eligible families, what was the ethnic makeup? What was the SES makeup? Mm -hmm. Can you get this data what was the makeup of those who discontinued use versus those who did? Can you mm. gather when people discontinue use? This is one of those things that I haven't seen a lot of. I don't think they collect a lot of why someone discontinues. Correct.
1: And I like, haven't se- we haven't seen that in too many papers, isn't it? It's like, well, they just didn't um, receive treatment,
0: I suppose. Yeah. Um, but why? Um, what happened there? And it would be good to know because the difference of someone dropping out because, okay, a family member died, it's all too hard, we've got to go through that, is very different than someone saying, I am not leaving my baby to cry anymore, I can't do this.
1: That is not working. But do you think that someone, you know, who's just discontinued because it doesn't work for them and doesn't respond, like they've completely ghosted the researchers, uh, we might never know why
0: it's true. But I think if there was a process as you started, and there's always going to be people we won't know, there's always yeah. going to be people who just ghost. But I think if the process was laid out at the beginning, if it's not working, if you choose to leave at any time, here's our little exit interview, you can click on this link, you don't even need to speak to the researcher. But Here's our little, I'm done with this, click, and are you able to answer why? Like, when I unsubscribe from the thousand email lists I somehow end (laughs) up on, and I don't know why, Um, when I unsubscribe every once in a while, I go through the process of trying to unsubscribe, which I think just gets me subscribed to more, and I'm not entirely (laughs) sure how to solve that problem, but... And I go through that. They always ask me, why are you unsubscribing? Too many emails, not relevant. I never signed up for this list. You can have even just to start the bare bones answers plus an other and see what you get. Maybe only 30 people of people that leave are actually responding to that. But that's still more information than we currently have Mm. about what's going on. Hmm.
1: My thoughts are telling me perhaps talk to other people who aren't part of the intervention, talk to clinicians, talk to, um, you know, uh, people like maternal child health nurses, talk to other people that do work with these families because if they are leaving an intervention, they are telling someone. It's not working. And so probably asking the question as to when it doesn't work, who is it not working for? Who has that information? Because in practice, certainly we do see where intervention isn't working and we're having to hold those voices. But no one's asking us, um, tell me why, tell me which families you're seeing. And of course there's confidentiality issues and all of that, but there could be a study where we're asking others that, who are these families going to and what are they saying?
0: And I think that's what I liked about the Lautzenheiser survey is that they kind of started getting at who's, uh, but they don't have the really who it's not working for. It was just the number of people. It was more of a quantitative look at it, but it really did highlight that. Yeah, it's not working. And I'm sure some of these families aren't actually going to anyone because now they might even feel like failures, right? They're now they've entered the study. They're going to do this. It's going to fix things. And it didn't. And these are, and this is what's heartbreaking. And we need, I I, I think the crux for us is, I mean, we will get to in another episode because this is our our big thing, but the crux for us is that we need more approaches. We need more interventions. We need more, and and when interventions, I hate that word because it feels like you're intervening in a family. And to me, it's, we need more support. And support can look like a lot of different things. For some people, the support is an intervention. For some, it is, as Hiscock and colleagues found, someone just to get on the phone with. And, talk and-, and
1: seek reassurance and say, you know, my child's doing this. Is this okay? Mm-hmm. Um, what could I be doing differently? Is my is it a problem? Um, and who defines? And just someone to talk that through and say, you know, no, that's okay. That's developmental and noble. That can sometimes, be enough for the parent to go back in there and support their child. So you're holding the parent while the parent's holding their child. That's all they need sometimes.
0: It's that circle, right, of support where you have whoever is at the crux of it, which is the baby, then the people around them, and then Mm -hmm. the rest of us serve as the people around them to support them through Mm -hmm. their support. And it's it's something that's lost, but I won't get into all the interventions that we need. But I think it really does. I, I think the take home here, and I know we're at time and I know we need to get going because of, of timing here, but I think the take home that I know for me, and I don't, I, I can't speak for you, but I, I'll let you, you address this after. The take home for me here is really helping everyone listening to understand that external validity isn't just a word. It's not, you know, it has something to do with who was in it. It is crucially important to how we interpret the data that comes from these studies. And again, sometimes we have more or less external validity. And many times, you know, I remember talking to Amanda Detmer um, on the podcast, because she does work um, with primates. And it is, um, or, or Rhesus macaques, I think, is what she has there. Yes, no, she's rhesus macaques. And it's, you know, okay, why would we look at rhesus macaques as opposed to humans? Because they can manipulate certain things. So what we lose in that external validity, we gain immensely in internal validity. And that's why you do a blend and then you do other studies with humans so that we then balance it backwards and we can blend it. So it's not saying... You need to have external validity that's 100% all the time. Mm-hmm. It's that we need to understand the flaws in external validity so that we can then design various studies that address those. Um, and that we can say, when we're giving advice to, say, healthcare professionals, actually, you know what? This tends to work for this group of people. Mm-hmm. But there may be a lot of reasons it doesn't. And you need to be cognizant of this so that you don't just come up with your one word answer. We don't give everyone penicillin because Mm -hmm. some people are allergic to it. Mm -hmm. And it's like this is what it feels like is that in the medical world, we would not just have we don't have one drug for everything because people are contraindicated. Mm -hmm. So we have alternatives and people can be contraindicated to crying it out. End of mm-hmm. story. That's just, it, it's not going to work. There's a, a plethora of reasons for it. You're not the failure. It is the lack of options being given because we have ignored external validity in the research. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: I agree. I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think what I, what for, for me, the takeaway is that if it's not working for you, it's not working for you. And that's okay. And that's not because um, you are doing something wrong or you've been told you're doing something wrong. It's just because the intervention is possibly not a good fit for you and your baby. Uh, and if that's the case, what we know from the attachment theory is. The goodness of fit between the mom and the baby, okay, is what's going to make that bond strong. And if you're going to be doing things to your baby that your baby is not accepting, and you don't feel like doing to your baby, then
0: don't. Just don't. And that's okay. Oh, Thank you. Yes, that is so important to just keep in mind there. So... I don't know, I mean, it feels like I'm all worked up. I'm just ready to rant for a while more, but I know we (laughs) need to tie this up because every time I I see these systemic issues in the research, it's because it's so big, it feels almost impossible to overcome, Yeah. right? It is, it just, how do we take these decades of a combination of crappy internal validity, Mm -hmm. a total lack of concern of external validity, And what has now become the status quo because of this, and change it around. And that's that's what we get to next time. I know, because we wrote a paper on it and that's what's I know. So that is coming up next. But I, I I thank you so much. I am so happy to have you back, LaVita. It is so lovely. I have missed you. I have missed our talking. It's such a different dynamic than just interviewing because I get angry. Um, <laughs> but it's not a you. It's not your fault. I know it's that. The topics we choose to talk about. <laughs> um, but I, I think it is so good. We will be back to talk about our paper on this very issue of finding alternatives for families. Mm-hmm coming up but uh, I it is so lovely to see you and so yes again everyone please external validity matters but there it's obviously as we said a whole lot more nuanced than that but do not feel like there is only one answer to your child's sleep troubles no there isn't instinct matters more thank you so much for listening that's it for this week I hope that you get a sense that maybe the research out there that you keep being told you should be listening to isn't actually that evidence-based for you Now, as I mentioned, going forward, I don't know exactly when our next episode will be, but I hope it's soon, and I imagine it will still be of interest to everyone. So please keep a lookout for new episodes, and in the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.